morning, everyone. Hopefully your Bibles are still open to Revelation chapter 18. If you stand on the driveway of my childhood home in Hawaii and you look to the south, you'll see probably one of the most unique sights in America. See, off in the distance, you'll see the symbols that mark both uh, our entrance and exit of, of our country into the Second World War. See, resting in, in Pearl Harbor, you have on the one side the USS Arizona, which, as you, many of you know, was bombed on December 7, 1941, that marked America's entrance into the Second World War. And across the harbor, you have moored permanently, kind of as a, as a museum, the USS Missouri which was the location on September 2nd, 1945, when the Empire of Japan unconditionally surrendered to the uh, Allies uh, in Tokyo Bay. I have a little bit of uh, what General MacArthur said at the surrender ceremony. MacArthur said this, It is my earnest hope, indeed the hope of all mankind, that from this occasion a better world shall emerge out of the blood and the carnage of the past, a world founded upon faith and understanding. You can only imagine on September 2nd, 1945, the global sigh of relief that everyone felt. The sense of hope replacing years of despair, hopelessness, and sorrow. Now, there are very few of us alive today, unfortunately, that remember that day well. But we've all seen the pictures, haven't we? The celebrations, the tears of joy, the relief, the ticker tape parades, the rejoicing that the war was over, the fighting has stopped, now peace can reign again. I do, however, remember the day that the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. Many of you do as well. The dancing in the streets, the singing, the weeping at the arrival of freedom, the cheering as the concrete barriers were cast down section by section. The Cold War was over. The evil empire of the Soviet Union had collapsed, and life had now returned to millions of people behind the wall. The end of a nightmare, the dawning of a new day of freedom. Now this morning... Scott read of such a victorious moment to us, but one that by far and away eclipses any celebration, any victory that has preceded it. And at the center of this celebration is God himself. Did you catch that in chapter 19? God destroys the enemy. His justice triumphs. His truth has won. His goodness prevails. His glory is known. Evil has been crushed by God. God has exacted punishment. Hallelujah, it says. And then the great wedding feast ensues. Friends, as we come quickly to the end of, of the book of Revelation, we see that the tables are turning very quickly as Satan and the world and all who oppose God are meeting their final end. Somewhat like the Egyptian army as the walls of the Red Sea came crashing in upon them, swept away by God's judgment, Satan, the world, and all that oppose the Lord and his kingdom is being swept away. This morning, Babylon, which as we learned last week, is representative of the world, the wicked world system, the world that we live in is finally thrown down. We've been talking about it for quite some time. Revelation 14 prophesied this very picture that we're seeing. And last week we talked about her doom, and this morning we heard read to us what that collapse looks like. Next week will be the beast and the false prophet, and then the week after that, the great dragon, Satan himself, is thrown down forever. 
This morning, as we looked at these, this chapter and a half, I have three goals, three aims this morning. Number one, give us cause to rejoice. And we have great reason to rejoice, as we heard in Revelation 19. My second one, though, is also to call us to come out, because that's what our text does in, in chapter 18, verse 4. And then our third is to warn us, to be aware of the Babylon's deceptions. So I want to give us cause to rejoice. I want to call us to come out of Babylon if you are, some, for some reason, tempted to stay in the world and warn us of Babylon's deceptions. Number one, let's look at our reason to rejoice. We're going to kind of start backwards here by, by starting at the end with Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10, four times, as you count them, four times, we hear the word hallelujah which is Hebrew, literally translated as praise the Lord. We see that there in verse 1, again in verse 3, again in verse 4, and then finally in verse 6. In verses 1 and 6, it says that the voices sounded like the, the voices of a great multitude or the roar of many waters. Imagine, if you would, a, a completely packed football stadium. 30,000 voices. And if you've ever had that experience, you know what I'm talking about. All chanting and rooting on their team, all speaking with one voice. Or maybe the mighty Niagara Falls, if you've ever been there, with the waters crashing and roaring so loud, you can hardly hear your own self thinking. John says, that's what these voices were like. They were crying out, hallelujah. You can imagine all the redeemed, all the angelic hosts, all of creation, as imagine, is crying out, rejoicing, because the war is won. Good has triumphed over evil. Righteousness now reigns. The cessation of all hostilities forever. No more will agony and suffering and sin be the order of the day. That has been done away with, and then the joy of a wedding celebration ensues. If you've ever been lucky enough to be at a, at a good wedding, a great wedding, you know a little bit of what's being described here this morning in Revelation 19. Celebration and frivolity abounds everywhere. Last weekend here on our campus was a perfect example of that. As, as Blake and Micah Parker came together as man and wife on this campus, the joy of the bride and groom coming together, surrounded by the celebration of their family and their friends, it was a wonderful time. It's one of the best blessings of being part of a local church, enjoying weddings and marriages and all that, celebrating life together. Every wedding like that is a foreshadowing, is a pointing forward to this great wedding feast that we read about here in Revelation 19. Oh, and we read the Bible, we don't want to just read it with a kind of cool, aloof Christian interest, but objectivity. We have to read it with the imagination of a wonderful wedding. Maybe you may think of your own wedding. I cannot help but think about just last weekend as I watched on the dance floor many of our young men, and some of you I'm looking at right now, abandoning all uh, oppressive, all, what's the word I'm looking for? Pretense to masculine pride and ego, all dancing together. Like they were doing the cowboy conga dance thing, and I'm looking for some of those guys. I don't know what kind of dance they were doing. Neither did the women because there were no girls on the dance floor. There was a perimeter of women, wide-eyed, looking at these men, 
By the way, our campus services guys who were supposed to be working were on the dance floor as well, roping other men onto the dance floor. It was the most bizarre expression of joy and fun as I watched this scene and all the girls saying, I'm not getting on there. Are you getting on there? I'm not getting on there. But everyone was having such a great time. The laughter, the hope, the joy, the promise of a bright future, the expression of love, the benevolent resolve to lifelong commitments. But friends, at this wedding here in Revelation 19, it's not simply hope or promise, but eternal assurance here. And look at the great news in verse 9. The angel said to me, John writes, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Friends, well, who are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Who are those? The Bible says, all those, all those who hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. So, you want to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? That invitation goes out. It's to all those who will respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. That's good news because that means any one of us can be invited. And as we know through our study of Revelation, repentance and faith, though, will cost you dearly in a life of obedience to Christ's commands. But the price of admission to this party, friends, by far and away is worth anything you might have to pay. If you're willing to pay that price, then John's admonition is clear. Rejoice. We can rejoice. Now, one example of paying that admission price to come into this marriage supper is to come out of Babylon, to come out of the world. As we learned last week, Babylon is a symbol, a motif of the world that stands in opposition to God and all of its sensuality and all of its lusts and all of its self-idolatry. That's what Babylon stands for. You want to come into the party? You want to pay that admission? Well, then just come out of Babylon. And that's what John says John gives us four reasons to come out of Babylon. Look at that in chapter 18, verse 4. He writes, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Remember the plagues we just looked at last week? For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. John gives us four reasons to come out of Babylon. John gives us four reasons to come out of the world. The first reason he gives us is the suddenness of her demise. Notice with me in verse 8, John writes, for this reason her plagues will come in a single day. As if everything collapsing in a single day was not enough. Look what John says in verse 10, at the very end of verse 10. For in a single hour, your judgment has come. Look at verse 17. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Middle of verse 19. For in a single hour, she has been laid waste. The suddenness of Babylon's demise, the suddenness of the collapse of the things of this world, the things of this world, friends, that seem so permanent, right? So, so secure, so forever, until they're not. History is full, friends, of moments in time where everything changed irreversibly, suddenly, in a moment. 
December 7th, 1941. September 11th, 2001. 2004, and the Indian Ocean tsunami took out 100,000 lives. 2010, the Haiti earthquake that took out over 150,000 lives. Maybe your own personal moment, you have a moment where suddenly, irreversibly, something changed and life would never be the same. In a moment, it happened. Not even in an hour, in an instant. Friends, all these moments and 10,000 more, like all weddings we attend, they foreshadow a one coming moment when this world and all of its realities that we feel are so fixed, so secure, so foundational, we find just goes away. The Lord says, my people, if you are in Babylon, if you are living for the things of this world, come out. Come out of the, the effervescent foundation of this world to one that is secure and thick in the kingdom of God. First reason we come out of Babylon, the suddenness of his demise, we don't know when it can collapse. We've all had that experience. The second reason John gives us is the impact of her demise. Did you notice that? It's not just a sudden thing, but it affects everyone, the great and the small. Look at chapter 18, verse 9. And the kings of the earth. And then look at verse 11. And the merchants of the earth, the great and the small, the kings and the working class. Friends, when it all comes undone, it's not going to be the 1% that the 99 gets mad at and says, you got your comeuppance. Everyone gets it. The 1%, the 99. Scripture makes it clear. From kings to merchants, no one's going to be spared Babylon's demise. But did you notice when it all comes undone, did you notice they're not weeping because they've recognized that their wickedness, their foolishness, their involvement, their, their involvement with Babylon. They're not grieving because of that. They weep because of what they lost. They don't weep because of their wickedness. They don't weep because they've been in opposition to God or been indifferent to God. They're bummed out because they're losing their best life now. Look at verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her. But here's, look at that next clause. Since no one buys their cargo anymore. They're not grieving because they recognize God's judgment has come upon me. They're grieving because the things I was living for are now taken away. Friends, how sad in this tragedy when it, the end comes, people still don't recognize the true problem. It's like running back to get your jewelry box when the Titanic is sinking. The Lord says, come out. Come out of this world that is just a haze and has blinded you by the materialism and the consumerism and has blunted you for the, for the passion you should have for Christ's eternal kingdom. Come out of the world. Come out of the world because it ends like that. And when it ends, it's total. And then that's the third point. The third point of coming out of the world is because not only the impact is so severe, but it's the totality of Babylon's fall. Notice with me verse, the second half of verse 2. So, so John is actually quoting from Isaiah here. Isaiah chapter 13, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. That was applied to, to Jerusalem when God's judgment came upon Jerusalem. So he's, 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 he's using things that they would remember from their history and saying, this is what it's going to be like in the world, totally desolate. Do you remember, friends? Not you, but John is saying, do you remember what Jerusalem looked like 
because of our God's judgment upon us for abandoning him. We were a desolation, a haunt for jackals and demons and ghosts and wild animals. That's the world. That's what the world's going to look like. In the very end of um, that verse there, verse 2b, fallen, fallen, she's a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every detestable thing. Verse 14, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. But in particular, look at verse 21 to 23. John writes this, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And craftsmen of every craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. What's John getting at? The complete loss of all cultural vestiges. Music, artistry, business, technology decimated forever as if it never existed. The Lord says, come out. Come out of this, this, this matrix-like world of a failing reality and come to the reality of Christ's kingdom. So reason number one that John gives us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, come out of Babylon because it's suddenly demise. It's over and you don't know. Come out of Babylon because the impact is total. No one will be spared. Come out of Babylon because her demise is complete. The erasure of almost all cultural vestiges will no longer even exist as if the things of this world never mattered. You're seeing the picture that John's painting here. But he gives us a fourth reason to come out of Babylon, and that is the justice of her demise. Verse 3, For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Verse 5, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. Why? For God has given judgment for you against her. And finally, verse 24 of chapter 18, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Friends, what are we reading here? This is the final culmination of what the saints were praying about. Go again, Revelation chapter 6. Remember those saints under the throne when the seals were open, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What we're seeing here is the final fulfillment of that judgment. Babylon's judgment will be just. And notice in verse 5, there's a bit of an ironic twist here. Verse 5, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, considering Babylon's infamous history in chapter, uh, chapter 11 of Genesis when they are attempting to build a tower to go as high as to heaven to show God that humanity was God's equal, we find out here all we have shown is that we piled our sins high up to heaven to show God that we are just, uh, we are, he is just in judging us. I think that's a bit ironic there in verse 5. But the Lord says, 
come out. Come out of Babylon. Put away your pride. Come out of Babylon. We have much reason to rejoice, but also we're called to come out of Babylon because her demise will be in an instant. You'll have no idea when it's going to happen. It will just come down in a single day, in a single hour. The impact of her demise is upon all people, small and great, wealthy and poor. The totality of her demise, it's as if none of the things of this world will ever have been remembered and existed and the justice of her demise, because this is what she deserves. This is what the world deserves. So John cries out, come out of Babylon. Friends, the warning of Revelation 18 could hardly be any stronger. It could hardly be any stronger. If you center your energies and your hopes in a philosophy of life that limits life to your possessions, to your pleasure, to your position you're going to be overthrown. If your philosophy of life limits life to power and pleasure and position, Revelation 18 says you're going to be overthrown. And you will be like the merchants and the kings who are weeping at what is taking place. Friends, one of the testimonies of the New Testament is that if in this life you lived as if this life was all there was, you've missed the meaning of life. Friends, if in this life you have only lived for this life, you've missed the meaning of life. And we see that spoken of very clear here in Revelation chapter 18. So those who want to come into the marriage feast of the Lamb, that's great, you can do it. How do you do it? In part, you come out of Babylon. You come out of the world. Let me ask you this, friends. Do you need to come out of the world? Are you somehow so enmeshed in the world that you are still in Babylon and may not even realize it? Well, John says, come out, because her end is coming soon. But there's also one last command here. Beware. Look at Revelation chapter 18, verse 7 and 8. But what I want to do with this last point is I want to give something, put something in your lunchbox, kind of a, a practical takeaway from what we're witnessing in this text let me just read it to you. This is, this is John talking about Babylon, how she thinks of herself. Verse 7, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. Friends, the hubris of Babylon is the hubris of every human heart. Notice what she says there, what it says in verse 7. She glorified herself. It's all about her, right? That is the world system. It's all about us. And that self-focus deceives us into a, a sense of self-confidence, a false confidence like it deceived her. Notice what she's saying. I sit as a queen. I'm no widow. Mourning I shall not see. I am self-reliant. I'm self-sustaining. Nothing bad will come to me. I'm good. I got it all. Friends, her story, the world story, is a story of humanity. Because what the Bible is saying is that humanity has gotten in bed with this prostitute, Babylon. Last week I talked about the betrayal of beauty, 
apart from Christ, beauty betrays us. And this, I said this week we're going to talk a little bit about that. So I want to unpack what it is because as you read this, you can say, well, I'm not part of Babylon. I'm not, not anything like that. I don't do wicked things. I don't do evil things. I'm not profiting off of people's injustices and all that. I'm okay. And because of that, it's very easy to read the Bible but not let it penetrate our hearts. So I want us to talk a little bit about desires and how our desires can lead us astray in the same way Babylon, the world, is led astray. Friends, I said last week, we need to be aware of unfettered, unsubmitted desires that reside in our hearts. What do I mean by that? Be aware of the desires that just run in our hearts. Because desires are not objective. This is something we teach in our counseling classes here. We say, what do you mean desires are not objective? Desires do not exist in a vacuum out there, right? Desires are always filtered to us. They're shaped to us. They're created by us, by our values, by our expectations, by our culture, by our families, by our experiences. Desires do not just exist out there. They're shaped and filtered through all these things in our lives. And to the degree that any one of those, your experiences, your values, your family, your expectations, are not shaped by God's word, to that degree you can be walking into Babylon all the while singing praises to God. You see, because our desires really can drive us. The desire to be happy above all else. The desire to be liked, the desire to feel important, the desire to feel accomplished, the desire to be satisfied, and on and on and on. We can have all these desires. Now, I'm not saying that these desires are wrong inherently. I'm, gonna, I'm trying to set something up here, trying to explain how we all experience these things, but so rarely do we say, are these desires legitimate desires? Friends, it's so, it's so, reason to, uh, it's so important to understand why we should submit every desire to God's word and also to the counsel of other godly believers. It's so important to submit every one of our desires to God's word and other godly believers is because by design, by design, the human capacity to desire is never satisfied. Let me say that again. Our capacity to desire things by God's design is that it can never be satisfied. In other words, friends, we were designed to have insatiable desire. We were designed to have a perpetual hunger. Now, you might be thinking, what? That doesn't, that, that, why, why is that the case? Why would God design us with desires that were, by design, never supposed to be satiated? Well, here's the reason why. If you're familiar with your Bibles... Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, teaches us that every one of us was designed to desire or image someone who is infinite. Thus, our capacity is infinite to desire because the thing by which we were created to desire is infinite itself. And so when God created humanity to image him, he gave us a desire to image him that could never be satiated because he can never be exhausted of his glory and wonder and love. You see what I'm getting at here? But see, what sin has done, it's a horrific tragedy, 
is that because of sin, our desire for that thing or that person who is infinite, sin has made us desire things that are finite. And we try to have these things satisfy us. So friends, Satan knew in the garden that we would never, ever stop desiring because we were made to desire the one person, the, the, the most desirable object, the most desirable person in the universe who is infinite and everlasting. And since he knew we would never stop desiring, his strategy was simple. All he needed to do was to get us to desire the wrong thing, and we will destroy ourselves to satisfy it. That's all he had to do. He knew by design we were made to desire something that could never be uh, exhausted. And so the strategy was simple. I'll just get their desires off of him and put it on things that can never satisfy. And I'm going to sit back and watch themselves destroy themselves to satisfy it. Friends, this is why it is so important that we make sure that our desires are not on the things of the world, but on the things of God. When we put our ultimate desires on the things of the world, we have set ourselves our course for our own doom. Is that making sense? You guys getting that? So in some sense, friends, when you think about it, we have a perfect storm in our culture, don't we? A culture of complete indulgence, right? That's the world we live in. And we have the things that continue to pursue. A culture of complete indulgence, right? Unfettered desires in a world that can never satisfy. That's a toxic storm for addiction. By the way, isn't that one of the biggest problems we have in our society? Why is that? Because the Bible tells us we were created with unsatiable desires. And yet now our desires are on the wrong thing. And we live in a culture of indulgence, but our desires are on the things that can never satisfy us. And so the thing we seek for peace, for rest, for security, for comfort will never bring it to us. But what do we keep doing? We keep chasing after it. And we keep chasing after it. And it keeps failing us. And then what do we do? Well, I'm going to find something else to put my desires on. And we keep chasing after it. Friends, in one sense, we're just all addicts looking for something to get addicted upon. Right? Addiction, if you know anything about it, it's a voluntary slavery. Because this thing promised me life. Or it promised me rest. Or it promised me to feel good about myself. And I keep pursuing it and it cannot satisfy because it wasn't meant to. Because the very desire I have for this relationship, this narcotic, this experience, was always intended to be upon the one that could never be exhausted. And so we live in a world of insatiable desires. David Wells, a theologian in his book, uh, Christ Above All Things, or uh, Above All Earthly Powers, says this, Desire is never satiated. The mountainous garbage heaps every city creates, the numerous used car lots, the garage sales, and the storage lockers all tell the story of use, but they often tell the story of desire too. Desire today is the only norm, and this is another indication of the way in which our modernized world has brought us to a place which, at a practical level, is godless. Friends, ever more luxuries transformed into necessities. The experience of comfort only fueling the desire for more comfort. A mad rush into nihilistic hedonism made even more mad by the false reinforcement and bombardment of social media. And so we're doomed 
to always want because we were designed to always want, but to the degree we haven't placed that affection and desire upon him, we'll destroy ourselves trying to satisfy it. By contrast, friends, by contrast, biblical wisdom is recognizing that we often want what we shouldn't want, and we need rescue. Friends, that's, that, you get that concept and you start understanding the gospel. Biblical wisdom is recognizing I often want the thing I shouldn't want. And what I don't need is kind of morals to live by or try to be better at certain things. I actually need rescue from myself. That's the gospel. Wisdom is having the, 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 the requisite self-awareness and humility to know one of two things. That either A... I want the wrong things in life, or B, and this is probably more true of if, if you're a Christian, I want the right things in the wrong ways. So biblical wisdom is either recognizing I want the wrong things in life, and th that's probably maybe what you were before you were a Christian, and then now you became a Christian, now you realize, oh, now I want the right things, but I want them in all the wrong ways. Friends, I can't tell you how many times people tell me well, doesn't God want me to be happy? And in pursuit of happiness, they will walk away from their husbands, their wives. They will destroy relationships because they want to be happy. They desire to be happy above all else. And I say, you know what God wants of you? He wants you to be like a son. That's what he wants. More than anything, more than your own happiness, God wants you to be like his son. But this is a powerful reality of the human heart. Keep this in mind, friends. If you don't get anything else, what the heart wants, what the heart desires, the mind will find reasonable. The emotions will find valuable. And the will will find doable. And you will orient your whole life to get that thing. What your heart wants, your mind will start justifying. I need that. I should have that. It should be mine. Your emotions will find it valuable. If I don't have that, my life won't be meaningful, or I, I won't be complete, and then your will will find doable. I'll do whatever it takes to get that thing. That's the way we're wired. I'll never forget my first pastorate. Perfect example of this. A godly man that I love so much. He tried to get me fired. He, he tried to have the church throw me out. His name was Einar Palm. And my wife is smiling right here because she knows Einar. And she says, you love Einer, and you have a hard time with him, but you love him because he's you when you're 90, basically, right? In the Midwest, he had these, he looked like Elmer Fudd and Kevin James kind of combined. He wore these glasses, and he was a Scandinavian guy. His name literally meant lone wolf, okay? And he would wear that little fluffy, furry, it looked like a Russian hat thing that had the thing, and he'd always wear it. And what got him wanting me to get, get fired was, Einer was always the head of the missions committee at the church. It was just assumed, even when we had votes and elections, that Einer would be the guy to head the missions committee. Well, as the new pastor, I felt like it was time to bring in a, a new vision for missions and younger people to get involved so that we can perpetuate missions for another generation. So I said, hey, I want Scott Gutwein, who was a former missionary, to lead our missions committee. Oh, but Einer wasn't going to have it. <laughs> Lone wolf. He said, this is pastor. We need to get, he would try to get me fired. He says, I was an ungodly shepherd. I was ruining the church because he's no longer head of the missions committee. Now, his wife was such a dear sweetheart. She told me, oh, Einer loves you. He prays for you. He just wants you fired and out of the church, but he still loves you. 
what was going on? Einer. Oh, I love Einer. And the reason I can say this is the brother's probably an attorney. He was like 90 when this happened. So although the elders joke, he might try and get me fired from here. He might still be around. <laughs> he wanted to be head of the missions committee. Is that a bad thing? No. That's actually a good thing to get someone to pour the time and energy and resources necessary to lead our vision for missions. That's the right thing. But he wanted it in all the wrong ways. Spread rumors about me, tried to get me fired, said I was ungodly, I was ruining the church until, and I guess all that would be fixed if he was head of the missions committee. What the heart wants, the mind finds reasonable. The emotions find valuable, and the will will find doable. Friends, it is so important to make sure that our desires are good, right desires placed upon the right thing. The question is, how do we do that? Here's my answer. i got to kind of start wrapping this up. Is We want to set our affections upon Jesus Christ. And, and by that I mean to desire his kingdom more than my kingdom, to desire his person more than the development of my personality, to desire his glory more than our own. And I just have some scriptures here that show this. I just love it. Colossians 3.1, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. First Chronicles 22, 19. I love this from the Old Testament. Now set your mind and heart to do what? To seek the Lord your God. Philippians 1, uh, 3, 14. I press on this idea of I'm moving in this direction towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love this one in 2 Chronicles 20 about Jehoshaphat. He was afraid. What did he do in his fear? What did he do to combat his fear? We might call it anxiety. He sought, he set his face to seek the Lord. And then Matthew 6.33, I love this one. You know it. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. I love that last one in particular because Jesus knows, if you know the context of Matthew 6, Jesus knows we will have legitimate concerns. Jesus knows we will have things that press against us. To food, eat, survival. And because those things are so real, Jesus says, but you seek the kingdom of God beyond, above all things first. And then these things will be given to you. How do we do that? I just have three suggestions because I talked about the power of our desires, how it transforms our minds and our hearts and our, our actions. So I want to give you some solutions in the same way. How do we put our desires on the person, glory, and, and kingdom of God above our own? And I can only share how I've done it. Number one, two, and three. Fill your mind with good books. Fill your heart with music. Fill your life with fellowship and service. Now, of course, I mean the Bible first and foremost. Sorry, that, that should go without saying. But I also mean fill your mind with good books that expand your thoughts on the understanding of the character and the purposes of God in this world to shape your Christian worldview so you understand what it is to have a Christian worldview of, of firefighting, of insurance policy, of law, whatever it might be, that you take God into your world. When I became a believer at the age of 16, we are talking about this a little bit last night, when I was trying to go to college, I had to get my transcripts and, and saw again, out of a class of 700, I was 610. So not the sharpest knife in the drawer. It was the word of God and good books 
that change me. That's why we have the book spot here, because life is too short to read bad books. Grab any one of those books. Start transforming your mind. Friends, I know Squid Game is, is popular. You don't need to watch that, right? I, I can tell you, I haven't seen it, but it's pretty much a time suck. You don't need to watch The Office all nine seasons again for the third time. It's not that good, right? <laughs> Nielsen Ratings says the average American spends four hours and 16 minutes a day watching TV. Seriously? Now, that might not be you guys. But if you're an average American, that says you spend four hours and 16 minutes. Now, you older folks are saying, yeah, these young kids need to get off the tube. Mm -mm -mm. The largest group that spent seven hours a day on the TV and more are 50 and above. How's that, boomer? Right? <laughs> but you younger people, you spend an average of four hours and 16 minutes on the TV on top of the three hours and 45 minutes you spend on your smartphone. Guys, that's a whole lifetime that's being wasted. Psalm 111.2 says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied, studied by all those who delight in him. Fill your mind with books. The men and women in the church history and today can disciple you and shape you and challenge your affections. Fill your heart with music that sings of the greatness of God. Fill your heart with music that sings the greatness of God. And I got to just say, but you need to be discerning because not all Christian music's the same. Right, right now, this week on Apple Music, the most popular Christian artist is a queer progressive saying that he's a Christian and proclaiming a queer agenda. So you need to be discerning. Not all Christian music is the same. But fill your heart with songs that sing the greatness of God. Sing loudly here on Sunday mornings. It doesn't matter if you can't sing. A lot of us can't sing. Stand next to them. No, no, no. <laughs> right? Robert's daughter, as I'm singing, she turns, she does this. She goes. <laughs> so I leaned over to Lori and said, she either thinks I'm awesome or I suck. <laughs> and Lori said, no, you just sing way too loud. Pull it down. <laughs> Guys, stir your affections. Put down your pride. Open your mouth. It is good for your soul, and God is worthy. Fill your heart with music that sings of his greatness. That's why God gave us music, because of the emotions. that grabs us. And so use that. Fill it with content that points you to God, even if you don't like it, like hymns. Okay, not all hymns are automatically good, but there's some good stuff there. Avail yourself to it. Hebrews 2.12 says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Fill your mind with good books. Fill your heart with music. Fill your life with fellowship and service. Be involved in a community group. Help them move. Serve them meals. Encourage them with words when you see the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Lovingly challenge them when you don't see the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Be here on Sunday mornings every week with an eye towards ministry to others. To love them, to know them, to serve them, to hear their stories. Be so involved with people here that when you stop showing up, you will actually be missed. Don't be a passive attender. Be a part of what God is doing. Take advantage of this special thing we call Sunday mornings where most of you don't see each other through the week, 
but you'll see each other on the Lord's day. Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see that day drawing near, what day is it talking about? It could be a lot of the days we've looked at in Revelation. It could be this day here in Revelation 18, 19. Friends, Babylon will fall. Babylon will fall. Will you rejoice? This world will fall. Will you rejoice because God is vindicated and his glory is made known? Or will you be a bit bummed out because the things of this world still have a grip on your heart? Do you need to come out? Are you entangled and enmeshed in a world system that is doomed to failure, that will betray you? Come out. Do you need to be aware of your own desires? Do you need to have a conversation with a brother and sister in Christ and say, hey, how am I handling this relationship with so-and-so? Or, hey, this desire for this job, what do you think God's word says about that? Hey, what does God's word say about the way I'm leading my family or not leading my family? Hey, what does God's word say on anything? Submit your desires because you know how powerful they are. Because whatever you want, right, you should know it by now, the mind will justify, the emotions will have value to it, and your will will do it. And to the degree it's not guided by God's word, you're going to be walking to Babylon. And we know how that ends. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and thank you for the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's a glorious picture. Long for that day, like all the good weddings we experience here. They're just foreshadowings, glimpses of what it's one day going to be like. Until then, Lord, help us to pay the price of admission. Help us to come out of Babylon. Some of us are tangled in Babylon and may not even know it because we haven't sought to have our desires examined. Lord, help us to do that. Give us grace to do it. Father, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the body of Christ. Bless our fellowship. May it make us more like Christ and honor him day by day. And we thank you in his name. Amen. Please stand. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.